open your Bibles to actually Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 28. A while back, I was in a park with my family, and we struck up a conversation with a man who was Jewish, and we began to talk about his spiritual beliefs and our spiritual beliefs. And at one point in the conversation, the, the man said to me, he said, we basically believe in the same God. Religions might be different, but really all paths lead to the same God, right? That's a very common view in our society. What do you say to someone like that? Maybe you're speaking to someone that's maybe a Mormon, or maybe they're Jehovah's Witness, or maybe Muslim, and, and that might be a, a statement they say to you. They say, well, all paths lead to God. You have your way, I have my way. So what's the truth? Well, the truth is that the God of biblical Christianity is unlike any other religion's God. Whether that be the God of Judaism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, Islam, the gods of Hinduism, whatever religion you want to pick in this world, our God is different. He's distinct. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And in that statement, Jesus made really two shocking claims. First of all, Jesus claimed that he was the exclusive way to the Father. There's not multiple paths. There's one path. It's through Christ and his cross, his work on the cross and his resurrection he is the way. His truth is the only true reality. He is the exclusive one who can give life. And the second claim that was pretty shocking here, and is a claim we see throughout the Gospels, is his claim in regard, or his, his description of the nature of God. That he claimed himself to be God, to be equal with God. And then he also spoke of the Father as God. He spoke of another one, the Spirit, and, and gave him divinity as well. And so he, he spoke of three persons, but yet he also taught that there's only one God. So over and over in the Gospels, we find these, these stunning claims that Jesus makes, and people are furious at him. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Jesus was killed. When he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus claimed to be the I Am. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be equal with the father. In fact, if, we are, if you're in your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 17, 18, and 19. What we're going to see here in these texts, in this text of scripture, is Jesus claiming and accepting the authority of God the position of God, and the worship of God. Look in verse 17. Here we see Jesus is with his disciples. This is after 
the resurrection. So Jesus has already suffered and died. He rose again. He's about to ascend to heaven. Verse 17, and when they, the disciples, saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him. Now, if you worship a man, that's blasphemy. Only God should be worshiped. But here is Jesus accepting the worship of God. How is that possible? Because Jesus is God. But also notice he didn't just accept the worship of God. He also accepted the position and the authority of God. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here you have Jesus who is truly man. He he is resurrected from the grave. He He has a new resurrected human body. He's truly man, but he's also truly God. And he's saying here that God the Father has shared his authority with him, the Son, and he has the authority now as co-ruler with the Father. And now his mission on earth is to save those who believe, to give them life. In fact, you can see that in verse 19. How does Jesus use his authority? He tells his disciples to go out in his authority. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. So the church is to go and preach the gospel, to call people to follow Christ, And then next, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So after a person is a disciple, they are to testify that they're a follower of Christ by being baptized. And this testifies that God has saved them. And what's interesting here is it's not just the Father or just the Son or just the Spirit or even just God. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And notice that name, verse verse 19, notice in the name. That name there, that word name is actually a singular. Now you would think it would say in the names of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, it says actually in the name. And then we see three uh, persons of the Trinity, three persons of God. The name there is singular and it's followed by the three persons. And what we're talking about here when we talk about the name is we're speaking of the name of God. Right before Christ came into this world, during the intertestamental period, the Jewish people stopped using the name for God, the name Yahweh. They would replace it with Adonai when they would write or when they would speak. Or sometimes they would actually replace it with the name by saying the name. And so what you see here, what what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that you are to baptize them in the name. Well, the name of who? The name of God. And then he says that they are, uh, that you baptize them in the name and then He gives three distinct persons. Look at verse 19. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's one God who eternally exists in three persons. And we call this the the Trinity. 
Now, if you were to search in your Bible to look for the word Trinity, you're not going to find it. The word Trinity is not in there, but the ideas of the Trinity are in here. Our God is a triune God. Now, usually when we start diving into this type of stuff, people start getting lost. And now you might be listening to me right now, and you might be lost. So what you got to do this morning is you got to just hang on, okay, as best you can, and try to understand what we're talking about. Trinity means three in one. Tri is three. Unity is one. So God is a three in a unity of one. Three persons, one being. And the Trinity, just as a, a quick overview, a quick overview of what the Trinity is, it really includes three truths about God, three truths about God found in the Bible. First of all, there is one and only one God. And the second truth is that he, etern- he eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then third, each of those persons are equally and fully God, yet there is one God. Got it? That's hard to understand, isn't it? In fact, I would say this, it's impossible for us to fathom, fully comprehend, because we're speaking about God. But the Bible teaches this, and therefore we believe this is true. The Bible teaches that there is one and only one God. So there's one being, one, if you want to say substance, one, one, uh, one God, one, one essence. And, and second, the Bible teaches that God, this one God, eternally exists in three distinct persons. I am a person. I am a being. Because I and uh, I, actually, I don't want to get this confused because I could really get some wrong doctrine out here. I, I am a person. I am a being. God is a being, but God is three persons. So there's one God, three persons. I am one being, one person. So is that hard to understand? Absolutely. How about number three? Each of those persons are equally and fully truly God, yet there's only one God. Now, I did a survey of the congregation, and some of you filled that out. Actually, had a good number of you filled that out. Thank you for doing that. And I asked a trick question. And the question was, what is a good illustration of the Trinity? I did it anonymously. The survey was anonymous because I didn't want you to give a wrong answer and then feel bad afterwards. So if you give an answer that is not according to what I'm talking about, don't feel bad about it, but maybe take notes. And and the reason it was a trick question is because there's really no material illustration or analogy that we can use that really can help people truly understand the Trinity. We can't take an egg or we can't take some other object and try to understand the immaterial, infinite God with this material thing. And then really the best we can do is, is to say what God is or who God is and who God is not, and then to go to the Bible and see Bible illustrations like creation or like the scriptures and how the scriptures came about or the virgin birth and virgin conception of Christ or the baptism of Christ, things like that. So that's what we're going to do. 
And what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going, to, we're going to speak about the Trinity. We're going to learn who God is, how God works, and then try to understand what that means for our life. But before we kind of go into that, we really need to try to, as much as we can, grasp what this means that God is a triune God. And so, for instance, what is God not? What is the Trinity not? Well, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not one God with three titles. So I, I, am, I am one being, one person, and I also have three titles. I'm a father, I'm a son, and I am a husband. But that is not a good illustration of God because God is one person, I'm sorry, God is one being, but God is also three persons. He's not, he doesn't just have three titles. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three gods with three different names. No, there's one God with three, as three persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not three parts of God. It's not like God is a pie and he's divided up into a third father, a third son, a third spirit. No, there's, there's one being who's God and there's three persons who make up that one essence. It's not that God the Father, Jehovah, created a son and there's a spirit force. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. No, God is, or the Father is God. Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, and no person of the Godhead has ever been created or come to be. They always have eternally existed as three persons and one God. Now, I think I probably have really lost everyone in here, haven't I? And, and again, what I'm trying to do is really help us to understand this as best we are able, but my, my point of doing this is I want us to understand as much as we are able, the mystery of the nature of God. Like we are trying to explain the unexplainable. We are trying to rationalize with our finite, limited minds the nature of one who is self-existing, who is, who is infinite, who is immutable. In other words, he never changes. He's immeasurable. He has all knowledge, all power. He has never had a beginning, never had an ending, like he has always been. It's like, it's like sitting down with my dog. I love my little puppy. I sit down with my little dog and I take my cell phone out. And imagine if I were to try to, to, try to teach my dog how to change the settings on my iPhone, right? I mean, my dog might get that I'm holding something that's bright in front of him, but beyond that, he's not gonna really comprehend it. Or think about going to a second grade class and, and trying to teach them calculus, Right? They might get subtraction and addition, maybe some multiplication there, maybe division, but that's the most they're going to get. They're not going to be able to go beyond that. And that's really what it is with us. We're trying to fathom something that's beyond our understanding. But it is important for us to understand as much as we are able. I mean, there is so much confusion about the nature of God. It leads people away from the gospel. Many people develop their own idea of who they think God is. Maybe they follow a religion that has come up with a conception of who they want God to be, or they've made God in their own image of what they think they want God to be. And that, that confusion about God leads people to believe things that are not true about God, and frankly, leads people to hell. But even for us as Christians, I think one of the sad things for us as Christians is that we have 
a very limited understanding of what the Bible says about God. I mean, it's so important for us as Christians to say, we want to know who God is. I mean, really, the goal of our life, one of the purposes of our lives are to, is to know God, right? We want to know him. We have a relationship with him. We are in fellowship with him. After 25 years of ministry, Paul wrote the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him. In other words, he said, I want to know God more. He prayed for the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.10, that they would grow in the knowledge of God. And yet, how many Christians have an inaccurate and really incomplete view of God? Have you ever had someone characterize you in an inaccurate way? Maybe, maybe they thought you were mean or they thought you were a snob, and it wasn't true. And it hurts when that happens, right? And it actually affects their relationship with you and your relationship with them. And how much more so with God? When we have an incorrect view of God, as Christians, when we have an incorrect view of God, it affects our relationship with him. So what I wanna do here this morning and through the next couple of weeks is I want to study the Trinity. I wanna understand and help us to understand better who God is as a triune God. Who is God? How does he work? What does it mean for us? Now, that was my introduction. And the rest of it hopefully won't be that long for your sake. Would you go with me to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at why the Trinity is essential for life. Why the Trinity is essential for life. Do you realize that absolutely everything in our world is dependent upon God being triune? The fact that you have life, the fact that we have relationships, the reality of love and fellowship, the fact that we have redemption and salvation and even eternal life, it's all because God is triune. If God was not a triune God, we could not have any of that. So this morning, what I want us to look at is how God is the giver of life. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches that Yahweh, our triune God, is the only giver of How did this world, this universe, come into existence? That's a question today that's asked. How did matter and time and space come to be? How did humans come on this earth? That's debated in many classrooms. Well, actually, many classrooms don't debate that anymore. But the answer to those questions are actually found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In fact, look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. This is going to be our key text here this morning. Genesis 2, 4 says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now you might think, this is an odd verse to be the key verse. I mean, why would you go to this verse to speak of life? God being the giver of life. 
Well, this verse is a transitional verse from chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives an overview of the six days of creation. And then we transition here to chapter 2, which really zooms in on day 6, the the sixth day of creation. And in verse 4, the author restates the same phrase twice. So it's this poetic parallelism. And notice that in verse 4. Notice how these statements or these two lines are parallel. These are the generations. So this is speaking of the beginnings, speaking of time. The beginnings of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then it's going to repeat in the day. So again, a reference to time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And almost every idea in this verse is repeated except for two words. What are those two words? Lord God. That's right. And it's these two words, Lord God, that really stand out in this verse. These two English words are the translation of the Hebrew words, Yahweh Elohim. And the emphasis in verse 4 is this, that all that exists was created by the one who is and has always existed. All that exists was created by the one who is and has always existed. And in verse 4, we discover the name of this one who created, and what's his name? Lord God. And notice in verse 4, the all caps L-O-R-D. We've spoken of this before. This is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And the name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word to be. So this has the idea that God is. He is self-existent. Yahweh is God's personal name, but it also reveals to us that he is independent from his creation. He doesn't need creation to exist. He doesn't need creation to be a God of love. He doesn't need creation to increase his joy or his glory. He is, he has always been, he is the self-existent one. Remember in in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was in the wilderness of Horeb, and there he saw a bush that was burning but not consumed. And there in the bush, standing there, was one who spoke to him. In that bush, this one said that he, the scripture says that he is God. He was God. God said to Moses who he was, I am who I am. He said, tell Israel, this is who I am. I am who I am. I have always existed. Tell them my name, which will be my name for generations. What is it? His name is Yahweh, Yahweh God. Yahweh, which means I exist. I always have been. I am life, life that never began, life that will never end. I am life that will never cease to be. Another text where we see that God declares himself as Yahweh is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. In your English Bible, it probably says, the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And here I put in the Hebrew word for the name of God, that is Yahweh. 
Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And I want you just to consider this verse with me. This is the, the Shema. This is a three-part prayer that Jewish people pray every morning and every evening. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 says here, or Shema, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And notice the word, the name Yahweh, it's singular. So one, Yahweh, our God. This word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. What's interesting is this is plural. And I'm getting technical on purpose because I want want to show you something. Singular Yahweh, God, singular Yahweh and God, plural or more than one. Now, some people uh, look at that and they say with Elohim, the plural Elohim, they say, well, this, this speaks of God's majesty. This is a majestic plural. And you might not know what that means, but I think there's a sense that it's probably true. But in the context of the Trinity, I mean, if you have singular Yahweh and then plural Elohim, that has to tell us something about the nature of God. In fact, if you look at that, you see this parallelism, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And what's interesting about this word one, it's used in other places to speak of a unity. In Genesis chapter two, verse 24, in fact, if you're in Genesis, look down at that. Genesis 2, 24, a man and a woman are to come together as one in marriage. Genesis 2, 24 says, a man is to be joined to his wife, the two are united as one, as one. And that's the same Hebrew word we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So here's what's interesting. Here you have Yahweh, our Elohim, plural. Yahweh is one. He is a unity of, a unity of, of persons. So look down in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And notice you see this here as well. Genesis 2, 24 What's the name of this God who creates? Yahweh, singular, and what? Elohim. And again, this is plural. So here you have the one who exists as, uh, the one who is God exists as a plurality of persons. What do we call that? We call that a trinity. And so Genesis 2 verse 4 is the first time in the scriptures that we actually see the name of God, Yahweh, show up. And what we observe here in this chapter, and actually you see it throughout the Old Testament, is that this name Yahweh, or all caps L-O-R-D, is the triune name for God. And the Old Testament, Yahweh is, is primarily used to refer to God the Father. But also there are times when it's referring to God the Son. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself declares that he is the Old Testament Yahweh. The apostles over and over teach that Jesus is Jesus Christ the Lord, and they they associate that word Lord with the Old Testament Yahweh. So as we're here in this passage right here, what we see here is that that Yahweh is representing, I think here, the the triune God. It encompasses the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and there's many texts where you can see that as well. In fact, I think if you, if you think back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, baptize them in the name 
What's that name? Yahweh. And what are the three persons? Who are the three persons? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's significant here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that the name Yahweh God is used to speak of creation. And why is that? Well, it tells us that no other God created. I mean, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created. Who is that God? Well, this verse tells us who that is. It's Yahweh God. And then second, I think it's significant that the name Yahweh is used here because it means that he preexisted creation. Yahweh, the triune God, is able to create and cause things to exist because he preexisted it all. In other words, before there was an earthly life and a celestial life, the triune God was the only life. And the triune God is the life that has always been, that is, and always will be. And again, we're having a hard time wrapping our minds around that, but that's what the Bible teaches. And so the Bible teaches that God is life. God exists. He has always existed. And he's always existed as a father, son, and spirit. The triune God is not dependent on anyone outside of himself, but he is dependent. The persons of the Trinity are dependent on each other. And each person enjoys eternal fellowship and an eternal relationship with one another. I mean, the father is a father and he has always been a father. The son is a son, and so he responds to his father in that way. The spirit is a spirit. And so the point is, the idea is, they have this relationship that has existed that way for eternity. And because they exist and have always existed as God, God is able to create existence, life itself. If you go down to the teen room down there in the family center, if you go down to the room, you'll see a pulpit. It's a beautiful, beautiful pulpit down there. And Brendan and Norm made that, I think, this week. Is that right? And uh, they took scraps of things, and they were able to make something. In other words, because they exist, they were able to form something, build something, and make something exist. That's the idea of God. Because God exists and has always existed, he is able to cause things to come into existence. And therefore, he is the only one who is able to do that. He is the only one who is able to give life. He is the giver of life. So look at verse four. I want you to notice this, what he created. What did he create? Verse four, these are the generations. So what's this speaking about? This is speaking about a beginning. So it's speaking about time of the heavens. This is speaking about space in the earth, that's speaking about matter when they were created. In the day, again, speaking about time, that the Yahweh God made the earth, that's speaking about matter, and the heavens. So what did God create? He created time and matter and space. And what's interesting to consider is that God created one and three, one creation with time, matter, and space. And each coexist in harmony in creation. It's also interesting to consider that each of those three are made up of one and threes. Time consists of a past and of a present and of a future. 
and they are inextricably united. Like you can't divide those up. Space has three independent directions, up or down, left or right, forward and backward. Ordinary matter is made up of an atom comprised of three particles, proton, protons, neutrons, and electrons. The point is just considering how God even wove into his creation this idea of one and three. And how did God create? Well, the triune God worked in harmony together to bring about creation. Creation is according to the Father's plan. God the Father is the designer. He's the one with all knowledge, all wisdom. And he did it through the Son. And he has all wisdom and all knowledge. But he uses his word to speak and accomplishes the Father's will. He's a son, so he obeys the Father. What the Father directs him to do, he does. He speaks. And then you have the Spirit who empowers. He empowers the word to accomplish the work the Father has designed. So you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit. What's interesting to see is in creation, how they interact, how they relate to one another, their different roles that they play within the triune Godhead. What's interesting is that's actually how God has acted for eternity and still how he works today. The Father plans, the Son speaks and obeys, the Spirit energizes it all to be done. And go back to Genesis chapter 1. I just want to show you this briefly in Genesis 1 and show you the work of the triune God to create. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, that's Elohim, interesting, that's a plural noun, created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then notice this, and the spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. So here you have the Holy Spirit. He's a real, true, full person of the Godhead. He's actively and personally engaging with the world as the agent of the Father and of the Son. And if you look at that word hovering there, it's the idea of of a bird taking care of its nest. And so here's the work of the Spirit taking care of the creation as it's coming into being. In fact, look at verse 3. In verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So notice what activated the Spirit to create light. It was what? The Word of God, according to the plan of the Father. Let me show you a couple of verses to show you this. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So notice, God the Father, Yahweh, created through his word and by his spirit. Hebrews chapter 1, well, I don't have that one up there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he, that's the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, that's the Father, appointed the heir of all things, through whom the Son, that is he's talking about, through whom also he, that's the Father, created the world. So the Father created the world through the Son. 
And then verse 3 goes on to say that the Son, God the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. So you have God the Father who planned and designed and through the Son, he created the worlds. In fact, even today, God the Father is, is sovereignly ruling and he is ruling through the agent of his Son who speaks and causes all things to be held together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Isn't it pretty amazing? Take your hand, just look at your hand like this and just think about your hand. I mean, here on your hand, you have skin, you have your flesh. Maybe you can feel your heartbeat. There's veins in there. There's blood that's pumping around in your hand. And and, and just think about that. Your hand holds together because of the Father's will. Because Jesus is saying it to be so and because the Holy Spirit bonds it together. That's what the Bible teaches. And that means then that every step you take, every breath you make is ordered and sustained by a triune God. Because I want us to take it from out here and put it right here, right in front of us. Because the reality is sometimes we think about God and we think he's in some distant galaxy far, far away. That's not true. We, We can look around us and realize God is working right now. Just the fact that we are being held together is the work of the triune God. It's not like God the Father is far out there and and Jesus is in some distant galaxy and and the Spirit's here with us, but I don't even see him around really. It's like, no, actually the, the work of the triune God is a part of our lives every day. We have a friend. Dana and I have a friend that's in South Carolina and she um, is in her 20s. She has three little babies and we found out this past week that she has stage four cancer. So she's in the hospital and she has a lot of things that are going on in her life. And you think about someone that's in that situation, sitting in a hospital room, and you have the beeping, and you have the nurses, and, and, and they look at their bodies, and there's, they're full of cancer. It's full of cancer. She has cancer in her lungs, in her brain. It's, it's stage four. And we don't know what the result of that will be. What is the comfort in the Trinity of God with someone like that? I mean, she can, she can look at her body Think about her situation. She can realize this. God is sovereign. He's in control. The father has a plan for her. And in fact, Jesus himself, by his word, holds it all together. It's not an accident what's happening. And she can take comfort in the fact that God is with her. And friends, even more important for us as Christians, that the Holy Spirit is within her. God is not distant. God is with us. He holds it all together. Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's the son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. Then notice also, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So life is held together by the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit as well. So Yahweh, our triune God, is the only giver and sustainer of life. And that's why it's so crazy for our world 
and then even for us to sometimes act as if, as if God is not present and we can be in control. I mean, if you're, if you're a young person in here or really even if you're an adult and you speak in a way and you, your attitude comes out in a way that is out of control, like you easily yell at people and slam doors and say words like that and you are out of control, you're, you're living as if God is not present and God does not care. If you can live all week long and watch what your heart desires and, and do what you want, and not care what God thinks, then then you need to meditate on this right here. And that is that God made life. God made life. He gave you life. He sustains life. Our lives are not our own. They are the Lord's. And then notice in Genesis chapter one, go to Genesis one, verse 26, because in verse 26, we see the, the center point of God's creation, which is, humanity. In Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And notice in verse 26, the plural us and our as God describes himself. God said, let us make man in our image. So again, you see the plurality of the persons of the Godhead. And notice verse 26, God makes humanity in his image, in our image, he says. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means that humans reflect God in some ways. Have you ever, have you ever had a person draw a caricature of you? Maybe you go to a place like a fair or Knott's Berry Farm or amusement park, and you have those people that have those boards, you know, and they have their little drawings, and they do these cartoon caricatures. And, you know, you're sitting there, or someone else is sitting there, and they, they draw, you know, a picture, and it looks like you, but maybe your nose is a little bigger than it should be, and your ears are a little bigger, and your body's really small, or whatever. But the point is, people can look at it, and they can say, oh, yeah, that's, that's that person right there. That's, that's an image of you. It's a reflection of you. Maybe not the best one in the world, but most people can recognize that. And what we see here is that God has, or we reflect God in how God has made us. God created us to reflect him in certain ways. And what are those ways? What are those attributes that reflect God? Well, they are the attributes of, and think about this, they are the attributes of the triune God. I mean, the first time you really see very, very clearly, this idea that God is one and there's a plurality of persons is in this verse, and it's in relationship to how God has made us in his image. And think about the triune God. The triune God eternally relates to each person in the Trinity. And I want you to come in and think about this. Think about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have existed as one God, three persons, for eternity, and the Father has loved the Son. And the Son has loved the Father. I mean, here is this mutual relationship of love. They fellowship with one another. There's this idea that the Father has his will and the, the Son is to obey that will. And so you have this authority and this submission for eternity. You have this idea that they relate to each other with knowledge. They can know and they can be known. 
And, and this is what he's talking about here. He's saying that the triune God has shared with us. He's really poured out himself into us and he's made us to be like him in these ways. In fact, look at verse 26. You can see at the end of that or the middle of that, it says that God said, let them have dominion. Then he talks about the fish and the birds and basically the earth. And so here you see this idea that God creates us in his image and it has to do something with even how we act. So he created us to be able to love. He created us to be able to have relationships. The, the Father and the Son and the Spirit delight in one another. He creates us with the ability, the ability to delight in God, to delight in one another, to, for us to be known and to know, to know him and for us to know one another. And even you see this, this idea that he's, he's made us with this ability to have authority and to have different roles in that authority. There's some that, that, that oversee and have dominion. There's some who submit. And that's not a sinful thing. It's not a part of the curse. It's actually a blessed thing. It's a part of the nature of who God is. In fact, look at verse 27. Verse 27, we find being made in God's image is also being made male and female. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So part of our being made in God's image is that humans are two genders, male and female. So, and think about that. There's one God, three persons. So you have these three persons who are united as one. So God made us male and female to be able to get married and be united as one. And so the uniqueness of a, a man and a woman is very, very important. It's important in the reflection of who God has made us to be. The triune God made humans two genders who can come together as one in marriage. And friends, this is why, this is why the whole gender-neutral movement and the abolition of marriage between a man and a woman is so evil. And I say evil, and that would probably shock many people to hear that in our society. Probably will get me canceled on the internet. But here's the point. It's so evil. Why? It goes against God's design. But here's why it's so terrible. It actually is an affront to God himself. Because it's actually saying how God, who God is, and how God has made us is wrong. And so, friends, it's so important for us to have a correct view of God and therefore to have a correct view of this world. We are made as two who become one. We are made to be able to have relationships and, and fellowship and love. And that's because God is a triune God. And I want you to put your thinking caps on, okay? It's my first grade teacher used to always say to me when I didn't understand what she was going to say. Put your thinking caps on. Just think about this. There is no other religion, no other God who could give us what we have in this world as far as the blessings of relationship, the blessings of love, the blessings of marriage. Like there's no other God who could give that. So let me just give an illustration. Let's think about one religion 
And again, this is kind of dangerous to do, I guess, in some sense, but I think it's a helpful exercise for us. Think about Islam. Islam has one God, and he's one being and one person. So one being, one person, who they say existed before creation. Now, if you have a God who is all by himself before there's a creation, he's all by himself, who can that God love? Nobody, except who? Himself. Who can that God know? Who does he have a relationship with? Nobody but himself. So if he's going to create someone in his image, he's going to have a creation in his image, what what are those people going to look like? What are they going to be like? They're going to be selfish. They're not going to be able to have relationships. They're not going to be able to to love and sacrifice for other people because they're made in the image of that God. Does that make sense? It actually, because we have a triune God and he is triune, that's why we're able to have relationships. That's why we're able to have joy and love. That's why it's a blessing to have the distinction of a man and a woman who come together in union. Like we're not, we're not, we don't say men rule and, you know, and girls drool, right? We don't do the opposite either, right? We're not saying women rule. We say, no, they're both blessed genders that God has given to us. And the distinctions are actually wonderful. They're wonderful. So what we see in creation, in the creation of humans is the triune God shares himself with his creation. And he gives us life. And friends, really life is being able to live in relationship. It's being able to love and enjoy and know, most importantly, God, but also one another. In fact, that's what you see in chapter two. Go back to chapter two. Chapter two, verse seven, and and on, we have this commentary on how God created man and woman. And in verse seven, you can see Genesis chapter two, verse seven, then the Lord, Yahweh, God, formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now notice how personal Yahweh God is here. He is not creating and then running to the other side of the galaxy. No, he is there personally with them. And so here what you see is this this personal manifestation of God. He he forms man. He, He builds woman, and he's there with them so, so they can enjoy him and he with them, and they can be a part of the fellowship of the triune God. In fact, in chapter 2, what you see here is this, this is Yahweh God coming and manifesting himself in some way. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. The Bible doesn't describe what it looks like, but we know that it's clearly not some distant voice. Like There's, there's something on earth that, that they can see And I believe this is the the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the son of God. Yahweh has, we see in the Old Testament, Yahweh appeared to Old Testament uh, people in different ways. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Yahweh appeared to Abraham. In, In Judges, Gideon saw the messenger or the angel of Yahweh, but what's interesting also that messenger of Yahweh is called Yahweh. Moses 
saw Yahweh stand in that flame. In Isaiah chapter 6, Yahweh was seen sitting in his holy temple. And I believe these are all personal manifestations of the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. And you ask, well, how do you know that? Well, let me just show you a verse here, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. So, so no person has truly seen the full glory and full majesty of God. But, but there has been times when God has manifested himself in some type of form, and, and most importantly and most permanently, when Jesus came and revealed himself to be the God-man that happened in the incarnation. And so the Bible says, no one has ever seen God. The only God, who is that? That's Jesus, who is in the Father's, at the Father's side. He has made him known. So it's God the Son who makes known God the Father. So go back to Genesis chapter 2, and I want you just to consider this personal manifestation of Yahweh God. Look at verse number seven. He, he forms man from the dirt. He gets his fingers dirty. He, he breathes into him the breath of life. Verse eight, he plants a garden. Verse 16, he speaks directly to them with commands, with words. Verse 21 he takes a rib from the side of Adam and he closes it up. Verse 22, he builds woman. And then go over to chapter three and verse eight and notice that Yahweh God walks in the garden and he fellowships and he's there to fellowship with man and with woman. And the point is this, that the father sent the son into that garden to commune with Adam and Eve by the Spirit. And so after creation, here you have Adam and you have Eve, and they are living in the blessed relationship, the blessed fellowship of the triune God. And they, they were loving God. They were loving each other. I mean, they, they had this perfect marriage. They had this perfect relationship with God. Until what? What changed all that? It wasn't God that changed it. It was, it was who? Whom? It was Adam and Eve. And what changed was they chose to love themselves instead of God. They, they chose to step outside of the, the fellowship and the relationship of the triune God, and they decided that they were going to live for themselves. And life turned from joy to pain. They no longer lived like the triune God. They no longer interacted with God and with each other as God designed them to. They no longer obeyed like the son obeys the father. They sinned and they lived independent from God. Love for God turned to love for self. Submission to God turned to rebellion against God. Humility within their role of marriage there, turned into pride. Life turned to death. In fact, look at chapter two, verse 17. God promised that. In the day you eat, in the day you sin, in the day you choose that you're gonna live outside of my fellowship, you're gonna 
You're gonna live life independent from me. You will die. And I want you to consider this. What is death? Death is the opposite of God. Death is the opposite of the triune God. Death is suffering. Death is pain. Death is separation. Death is the loss of of fellowship with God. Death is a soul cursed to hell. Death is a body that will waste away and soon run out. Death is everything God is not. God is life. So the Bible teaches that because we have rejected God, we have sinned against God, because Adam and Eve rejected God and they sinned against God, we have the sentence of death upon us. Every person born into this world inherits a sinful nature. It's a nature of spiritual death, which means your body will die and your soul is and will be forever separated from God. And the emptiness a person feels, the lostness they sense, the despair they have, the the dread of death they have, those are symptoms that they are spiritually dead. And that's why, friends, we need God to revive us. Yahweh, our triune God, is the only giver of life, and therefore, you can only have new, abundant life in him. Every person today listening to my voice, every person that's born to this world, they need God to give them new life. And friends, that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to give life. Think about, think about Luke chapter one, where you have this angel Gabriel speaking, saying, Mary, you're favored. The Lord is with you. Yahweh, God is with you. Oh, how is that manifested here? Well, the grace of God the Father is upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you like at creation. And within you will be conceived a holy child and he'll be called the Son of God. Or how about this? When Jesus said, for God, that's God the Father, so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son so that you would not perish, so that you don't have to stay spiritually dead, but that you can have life eternal. Or how about this one? For as the Father has life in himself, so God the Father is life, and he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and the Spirit also has life and gives life. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they have life, and they are able to give life. So They alone give life, and therefore we need to look to them for spiritual life. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you listen to my word, you believe in him, that's the father who sent me, you can have eternal life. He does not pass into judgment. In other words, you're not going to spend eternity with the sentence of death upon you, but you've passed from death to life. How about this one? Whoever believes in the son has life eternal. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. So if you say, you know what? I don't really care about God. I don't really care about Jesus Christ. I'm gonna live my life how I want. The scripture says here, well, you're not gonna, you don't have life. You're not gonna see life. In fact, death remains on you. The wrath of God remains upon you. 
This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I mean, think about that. Jesus says, this is what life's about. What is it? To know God. Life is about relationship with God. And if you're in here and you're without Christ, he invites you into that through Jesus Christ. And church, life for us isn't just about going to heaven and spending eternity with Jesus. It is about that. Like, that's important. But actually, we can have life now. And we can have that life as we experience a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it should be abundant. Jesus says, I came that they may have life. God has given us life through the Son, by the Spirit, and he gives us abundant life. That means each one of us in here, we should be enjoying the abundant life that God has provided for us. And then last of all, do you know why God gave us this book right here? Why do we have this book? These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life through his name. He wants us to have life. So the question, I think, for us in this, morning, this morning in this room is this. Do you have life? You're like, well, I'm breathing. I'm talking about that. Do you have life in the triune God? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Are you living in communion with him? And if you have not believed in Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, if you're not turned from your sin in your own way, and believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you don't have life. So God invites you into the life of the triune God. And second, for us Christians, we should be enjoying this abundant life. I mean, that's what we're doing here at church, right? When we sing, we're coming into the fellowship of the Son. We're coming into the fellowship of the Father, into the fellowship of the Spirit. We are enjoying the life God has provided for us. And we should sing and pray in fellowship with one another, enjoying the life that God has provided. Yahweh, our triune God, is the only giver of life. Therefore, you can only have new, abundant life in him. Are you enjoying the life that God has given to you? Let's pray.